You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash Thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. And our guest today is Nathan Hirsch. He is co-founder of The Outsource School. He's founder of FreeUp, which actually recently got acquired. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But Nathan is really a master at starting businesses, using limited resources, you know, getting them up and growing quickly. I always love to talk to people who have been through that process. I especially love to talk to people who have been through the process more than once. So <laughs> having kind of built and grown companies, you learn a lot uh, and you learn a lot of uh, things not only about how to do that, but about yourself. And I'm always interested to hearing what the lessons are that they've learned and how we can help uh, our, our audience members you know, learn those things so they can grow and scale faster. So with that, Nathan, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. So, so you've done a couple of different businesses. I mean, why don't we talk a little bit about your background and how you just got into kind of the business world? Was this something that in kindergarten, you know, you said you wanted to be a founder and grow and scale businesses? Was this something that came later life. Give us a little sense of how this came about. And then let's talk about some of the business that you've been part of. Yeah. So my parents were both teachers growing up. So I always grew with, grew up with the mentality that I would go to school, get a real job or go to school, go to college, get a degree, (laughs) get a real job. And that was going to be my life. And my parents always wanted to teach me life lessons about finance, about working hard. And so they've always made me get jobs from the time I was 15 and on. I I became an umpire and then the head umpire of my little league. And then I got a job at Aaron's and Firestone. And and I, I was working 40, 50, hours a week, every single summer, every single winter. So I kind of learned a lot about sales and managing people and what a business was like behind the scenes. And I also got to experience having a boss for the first time, a real boss and working nine to five. And and I absolutely hated it. I, I could not <laughs> wait to leave there. And, yeah. and I was like upset that I had to do this. Like all my friends were outside playing. And I almost feel like I got a glimpse into what the real world was like after college. And I wanted no part of it. So when I got to college, I kind of had the mentality that I had four years to figure out how to start a business or I was going to go into the real world and never look back. And I think that's what really lit that fire underneath me. Yeah. Yeah. And so where did you start? I mean, obviously there's lots of different ways that people can kind of get into business, a lot of different business models. I mean, was this just sort of the opportunities that came at you? Were you was this a kind of a plan that you had? Tell us about how you really got started in in from the business point of view. Yeah. So I, I got to college. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I yeah. remember I was buying these textbooks for hundreds of dollars. And then I went to sell them back to the bookstore and they were offering me pennies in the dollar. And yeah. I thought this is BS. I, I can do this better myself. So I didn't sell my books to the bookstore. I I went and I found different online distributors and I started selling my books and making more money. And I offered it to my friends. I said, Hey, I'll give you more than the bookstore. I'll mark it up a little bit. I'll make a profit. And they thought it was awesome. They got more money. I I made money. It was a win-win. And I created a little referral program. They started telling their friends and 
before I knew it, I had lines out the door of people trying to sell me their books to the point where I actually got a cease and desist letter from my college <laughs> telling me to knock it off because I was competing with their bookstore. So that was kind of my glimpse into being an entrepreneur. It's funny. I always say that you know you're successful when someone tries to sue you. <laughs> exactly. And and my like I said, my parents were teachers, so I didn't want to get kicked out of college. That would not have gone over very well. And so I pivoted. I had sold some of these books on Amazon, and this was 2008. 2009. No one really knew what Amazon was. And I thought it was so cool. I had this 24 seven storefront and people could leave me reviews and they automatically deposited money in my bank account. All this stuff was new back then. And and I just had to figure out what to sell besides books. So I started doing a lot of experimenting, really just trial and error. And I tried like video games, computers. I tried the sporting equipment, the stuff I was familiar with. Mm -hmm. And I just failed over and over and over. And it wasn't until I branched out of my comfort zone and found the baby product industry that my business really started to take off. So if you can imagine me as a a 20-year-old single college guy (laughs) selling baby products on Amazon, and not just baby products, we're talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of baby products, that was me. And and that business really took off. and, And it wasn't until my first busy season where I got absolutely destroyed. I was doing every single part of my business, working 20 hours a day, and my social life plummeted, my grades went down. That was like, oh my God, I need to start hiring people. And and through that poor experience hiring college kids that weren't reliable, that were smoking weed on the job, that didn't care about my business, that's how I really got into the virtually hiring world, which was my next adventure. Yeah. And, and, um, I mean, I guess I always, I always love businesses that come out of other businesses. <laughs> like a, you learn something in one business and you're like, oh, wow, there's my next business. How, how did you make the decision to kind of refocus to say, Hey, you know what, this current business that I'm running either is not doing well, or it doesn't have nearly as much opportunity. How do you make that shift both kind of practically and mentally? So it was kind of a crazy time because I was making a good amount of money on Amazon. It was like cash cow. I paid off all my student loans. I bought a car. Like I, mm-hmm. I was making money for the first time, but at the same time, I wasn't really building anything because it was everything was dependent on Amazon, right? You didn't have a brand. You didn't have a name. You were just one seller on Amazon. And on the flip side, I wasn't making my own baby products. I didn't have any patents or trademarks. I was selling other people's products. So I was 100% dependent on the manufacturers. I was 100% dependent on Amazon who started to change their algorithm and make it harder. And then the flip side of it, all these courses and gurus come out and more people learn about Amazon and they're selling. So at the beginning, we're doubling every year and we're like, like, oh my God, we're going to take over the world. We're going to take over e-commerce. We're going to take mm. down Amazon. And yeah. then we stop doubling every year and we're still making money, but we're just kind of adjusting to Amazon and adjusting to the competition. We're not really building anything. And we're also doing B2C. So after years of doing this, and I sold on Amazon for like six or seven years, I really started to just hate it. It became more of a job, even though it was making mm-hmm. money. And, and then when I had the idea, when I got into the virtual hire world, I, I found the Upworks and the Fivers of the world. And I really didn't like those platforms. Very similar to how I didn't like the textbook company at school. I said, you know what? I can do this better. I can build a better marketplace. And that's when I took a lot of the VAs from my Amazon business and started experimenting, building a marketplace that was for pre-vetted VAs where only the top 1% got in and we protected the clients and made it a good experience for the freelancers. And we took that to market and we're fortunate that people really liked it. And that business started to grow and it started to grow faster than our Amazon business. And it was B2B. So 
for the first time I was meeting other entrepreneurs and networking and not secluded anymore and actually helping people rather than just helping my bank account. So at some point it became an easy decision to focus all our efforts on growing our own brand or own website, growing the free up marketplace, building our own software that actually helps people B2B and stop working on the Amazon business. Yeah. I'm curious what, um, I mean, kind of what personal lessons did you learn in terms of, you know, how you needed to think differently or kind of strategies you needed to use or, or things you needed to let go of making that switch from kind of a, you know, a seller B2C seller model to more of a B2B marketplace. And just, I'm always curious what, what transformations leaders need to go through to switch businesses and switch roles. So I think there were two sides of it. The first side of it, I didn't know anything about marketing. I knew nothing about SEO. I didn't know the first thing about building a website or running a campaign or any of it because I was just doing B2C on Amazon and you pay Amazon on the 15% and they handle the marketing for you. So that we had to learn from scratch. And I say we, my business partner, Connor and I, and and so we learned a, a lot just doing that. And I think the other side of it is, and things have changed now because there's Facebook groups of Amazon sellers, but back then Amazon was very secretive. Everyone kind of had their own tricks on Amazon. You didn't want to talk to other Amazon sellers because mm-hmm. they would steal your ideas. It was very competitive. And so going into the building your own brand and, and free up, all of a sudden I wanted to network with entrepreneurs. I wanted to get to know other people. I wanted to learn what they were doing and people were open to sharing, which they weren't with Amazon. And I was open as a year or two later when I actually learned stuff and was having success, I was more open to sharing what I was doing. So I think that mentality switch where if someone else gets my information, then I'm going to fail rather than, hey, we can all win together. I think that really changed in that first year or two of switching. Yeah, no, that's a good one. And so free up, I mean, there's a lot of different marketplaces out there. You mentioned a couple, the Upworks and you know, Fiverr was doing stuff like this as well. I mean, what? how did you kind of look at the market and find the whole, find the, the unsolved kind of problem or unmet need within the market for that? Tell us a little bit about that process. Yeah. So I I really hated posting a job, getting 50 applicants, interviewing them one by one. It just took forever as a business owner. And then if that person didn't work out, I had to start that process all over again. So I kind of designed free up on what the perfect marketplace was for me as a client. And and so I created it where it was around four things, pre-vetting. So free up gets thousands of applicants every week, top 1% get on the platform. And then we match people up quickly. Clients put in a request, we fill it within an hour or so, a few hours, and the client gets started right away. And they know we've already vetted the person. Great 24-7 support. So if you have even the smallest issue, we're there to help right away. And then lastly, a no turnover protection because turnover kills businesses. If someone quits or quits in the middle of your project, we cover replacement costs and get you a new person right away. So those were the four key principles. And we also felt like the Upworks and the Fibers were very much pro-client and Although we're pro-client and we care about customer service, we also wanted to be pro-freelancer and make sure they like the community because we knew that they had tons of options of places they can offer their services. And we wanted them to love free up and love being here. So I think that was a mentality we took and a lot more of a personal approach. And we also said, listen, we can't compete with the Upworks on software. We can't compete with the Upworks on marketing. Where we can compete with them is on customer service. And that was our main focus on both the client and the freelancer side. Yeah, I think that's smart. I mean, I think I'm, um, uh, you know, the, these uh, these types of businesses are double sided markets, right? So you need to go out and find customers. You need to find companies that need those freelance services, but you have to find the right freelancers. And yeah, I mean, I've I've used these and I've had that similar experience. You know, you've got to you've got to hire basically ten for a little while, <laughs> and, then, and then Lord of the Flies and see which one kind of bubbles to the top. Um, how I guess how did you go about actual finding the freelancers and give us a little more on how you vetted them? You know, were these interviews? Did you give 
give them projects? Did they, you know, kind of earn their way into higher, higher kind of level clients? Like what was the process you used to really kind of find and, and evaluate the freelancer side? Yeah. So, I mean, at first we took these VAs from our Amazon business and moved it over and we started going after Amazon sellers and we said, Hey, we have these VAs. They've worked mm-hmm. for me on my Amazon business that they, they're good. I can vouch for them. And then we ran out of VAs. So we said, okay, we yeah. need to build a recruitment team. And so we really took the hiring process from our Amazon business that took us a good five years. We didn't really talk about this, but I made years and years of mistakes hiring VAs and <laughs> yeah. I learned good systems and processes. And we moved that over to free up and, and so it was, uh, people would apply on the website. We would review what their, their application was, decide what percentage of those we want to interview. We do one-on-one interviews via Skype or Slack. And then we would have skill tests. We would vet them for attitude and we vet okay. them for yeah. communication skills. Those mm-hmm. were the three things we'd vet people for. And these weren't just VAs in the Philippines. These were U.S. experts, like five to a hundred plus per hour. So a pretty wide range. And we had to build out different vetting processes. This is how we vet developers. This is how we vet Facebook ad experts and all of that. So, and it's still, I mean, free up still running today. I'm now a client of free up, which is a little bit weird, um, but they have a, a, a great vetting process that it's tough to get on. But once you're on, it's worth it because the clients there are good and, and you're going to get treated very well. Yeah. And how did you choose what kind of skills or what type of freelancing services you wanted to offer and what maybe even more curious about which ones did you decide not to do and why? Good question. So we started off very niche. So we were Amazon sellers. So we yeah. went after Amazon sellers. So it was all Amazon services, Amazon customer service, Amazon listing, Amazon marketing, all stuff like that. And then we got pretty well known in the Amazon space. So we branched out to e-commerce. So Shopify sellers, Walmart sellers. And all of a sudden people started asking, hey, can you do marketing for my website? And so we kind of branched into the marketing space. So from an advertising perspective, we went after e-commerce and we went after marketing, the marketing community, just because you can't go after everyone, but people would refer other people and we'd get real estate agents and software companies and different stuff like that. So I think it kind of started off as Amazon skills. And then we just kept building off of that. And our whole thing was we didn't want to add a skill that we didn't know how to vet for. If it was just rolling the dice and hoping it was going to work out for the clients, that wasn't going to work. So over time, we would just continue adding skills and making sure that we could vet for that particular thing. And I mean, now FreeUp has over 100 skill sets. There's very little that they don't offer. And and I'm sure they continue, the new owners just continue to add different skill sets that they know they can vet for. Yeah. Any other big learnings uh, as you kind of expanded that business, either in terms of, you know, as the business got to certain sizes, you know, more processes you had to put in place or more people you need to bring on or tell us a little bit about the scaling experience you had as as things grew. Yeah. I mean, the cool thing about FreeUp, it was, it was me, my business partner, Connor, and 35 VAs in the field. Philippines. And we didn't just wake up one day and hire 35 people. We had systems and processes we went through and we started off with a part-time VA and then increased it and hired more people each year and built out the recruitment team, the billing team, the customer service team, the social media team. So we really built out those teams. And we actually have a case study. If you go to outsource school, we have a case study where we break down year by year who we hired, how we grew, how we organized the teams with team leaders and assisted team leaders. So listeners can, can check that out. But I mean, I would say the the biggest thing that that we kind of learned along the way outside of, hey, you can grow an eight-figure business, just remote teams with no office, was, hey, at first we launched this really crummy software. That's what we spent our initial $5,000 on to get it to market. And for years, people liked our customer service. They liked our VAs. They they hopefully liked me, but they hated our software. And, and so it took us a good year, year and a half to be like, okay, we're a software company. We have to start acting like a software company. We need multiple developers. We need quality assurance people. We need to have a projects and sprints and, and really organize it like a software company and build out this platform. So I think that mentality shift 
shift from, hey, we're not only a business, but we're also a software company. I wish we had done that a little bit earlier. And once we started to focus on that, just like we were focused on getting clients, getting freelancers and the experience, that's when we started to accelerate even more. Yeah. And on the client side, what did you notice in terms of who your best clients were? What did they look like? How did you find them? What characterized them? So we found clients in all sorts of different ways. I mean, we had that affiliate program where any clients you refer, you get 50 cents for every hour that we build with them forever. We had we went on lots of podcasts. We had partnerships with other people in the space where we do content swaps. They promote us. We promote them. We work with micro influencers who promoted us. And we do a lot of just different joint ventures. So that's really how we found clients very organically. We also put out a lot of content, our blog, our YouTube video, stuff like that. I mean, our ideal clients were, our biggest clients were all over the place. Some of them were marketing agencies. Some of them were Amazon agencies. Some of them were Amazon sellers or Shopify sellers. And I think that's kind of the beauty of virtual assistants. And, and why, one of the reasons why I'm really excited about Outsource School, my new venture is it really just applies to every entrepreneur. And if COVID-19 has kind of taught people anything, and 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 I would never use it to, to promote anything, but the world was going more remote anyway. This thing kind of just sped it all up. And, yeah. and the entrepreneurs that know how to manage remote teams, that can build remote teams, that have the flexibility of a remote workforce, they have a huge competitive advantage. And now more than ever is the time to learn how to hire virtual assistants to scale a business because you don't need an office anymore. Mm-hmm. You can scale an eight-figure business with virtual assistants. Yeah. And what is it for the entrepreneurs that do know how to do that? What do you notice? Like, What is it that they know how to do that makes them effective in building out virtual teams? I like to break it down into interviewing, onboarding, training, and managing. So we have a, our main course on Outsource School called Cracking the VA Code, and that's what we teach people, our exact interview process, what questions to ask, how to go about it, what red flags to look for, how do you onboard them, how do you set expectations, there's no surprises down the line, how you train them so you manage your time at the highest possible level and you're not stuck doing one-on-one training for a week and then realizing the person's not good and you've just lost an entire week and building really good SOPs. And then once you've invested time, energy, and money into someone, how do you keep them around? How do you keep them motivated? Because turnover just kills. It destroys small businesses. Mm-hmm. And how do you run meetings? How do you keep them organized? How do you fire someone if it comes to that while still protecting your business remotely? So all that stuff we kind of go over. And that's the kind of things that, that people should be thinking about uh, when they're dealing with virtual assistants. So tell me about the uh, transition from from free up to outsource school. Did you have that kind of pre-planned? Was that kind of a, what was that transition like for you? <laughs> It wasn't pre-planned. One of our clients, the Hoth, who's actually located about an hour and a half from me in Tampa, they reached out to us. They'd been inclined to free up. They said, hey, we, we love free up. We've been using you for a year. We we want to get into the VA freelancer space. We don't want to build a marketplace from scratch. Would you be interested in being acquired? And, and we heard them out. They ended up making an offer that we felt was more than fair, if not aggressive. And mm-hmm. from there, the due diligence began. I mean, they had a million questions for us and we got to show off our SOPs and our amazing team and all of that. And we had questions for them. We didn't want to sell our business to someone who's going to drive into the ground or ruin our relationships or treat our internal team poorly. So they checked all the boxes. We were very impressed. They had a lot more experience scaling businesses than we did. Mm -hmm. Um, So we felt like they were the right people to do it. And I mean, the worst part of it was missing our internal team. We love them. We continue to be in contact with them. We took $500,000 from the sale and gave it to our internal team in the Philippines. And we made sure all their jobs were secure. We weren't signing anything if anyone's going to lose their job. So we really spent a lot of time on that. And at the end, we before we made that final decision to, to sign on the dotted line, I mean, we looked at it as a win-win-win for everyone. And it was tough to, to turn down something that we felt like was a win-win. So 
we made that decision. We helped with a 90-day transition. We wanted to make sure they were set up to be successful, and, and we still have a great relationship with them. We're partnered with them now. We, we talk to them all the time, and so they're great. And then we just we had a lot of talks. Did we want to get into real estate? Did my partner, Connor, and I want to stay in the VA space, get out of the VA space? And a lot of people started reaching out to us saying, hey, can you teach us how, how you did it? Can you teach us your exact processes of how you use VAs for different things? And we'd gone on podcasts and we'd written blog articles, but we never really laid out, hey, follow these steps, do this. And, mm-hmm. and so we had the idea of outsource school. We got our, our developer that built the free app platform who was part of the buyout to build start building VA software. So we have this SOP building software coming out very soon. And mm-hmm. People that want to be a beta tester for that can, can sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we'll be launching that. And then the education side, we, we built this really awesome course called Cracking the VA Code that breaks down our exact system and processes that we used. And, and we're kind of we're trying to build this membership community where anyone who buys Cracking the VA Code gets a year membership for outsource school. And that means you get all the other courses, all the other content that we come out with. So we have different courses for getting on podcasts, for using VAs for lead generation, for hiring a VA bookkeeper for building a partnership program. So all these things that we use virtual assistants for, and we're going to bring in other experts to teach people how to do VA stuff that we don't even know how to do. We want to build an awesome community that really educates and helps people. And and yeah, you can go to free up and get really good people. But if you don't know what to do with those people after a fact, it really does so much good. Yeah. Uh, and talk to me a little bit about the the sale. I'm just kind of curious. What what are the things that you think you did that really helped either the sale process, the valuation? I mean, people always struggle with this: how to sell a service based company. And and it's I think there are a couple of different ways that I've seen that go well. There are a lot of ways I've seen that go not so well. <laughs> but you know, just what are some of the things you think you did? You know, at various parts of the company at various times that allowed you to be able to have this exit. You know, hopefully at a decent valuation. I mean, it sounds like you you were happy with the numbers, but what are the things that you did that other people that are in service companies might think about before they actually engage in a sale process that's going to help them with that? Yeah, good question. So without breaking my uh, non-disclosure yeah, exactly. agreement, <laughs> I mean, I think what helped us with the evaluation is we had a lot of repeat clients, so very low turnover there. Uh-huh. Um, and I think what helped us actually get the sale was our really good systems and processes. We had yeah. documents for everything when they were doing due diligence and they said, hey, how does billing work? How does customer service work? But then five minutes, we said, here's a 30-page document that lays it out step by step of every situation that could possibly happen. And I think our internal team kind of spoke for itself as well on how talented they are and how the business really ran without Connor and I. Like, yeah, maybe yeah. I was the face of the business and I went on podcasts and I helped market, but that's replaceable. You can always come in with a bigger marketing team that, that yeah. replaces that, but the actual day-to-day parts of the business weren't run by me. And I think that's what the Hots was looking for. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's smart. I think that having a system that's outside of the founder or outside of your key executives, you know, because the moment you lose those people, like if the business is going to fall apart, it's not very valuable. So, you know, have, having that in place certainly seems like a, a big value add or a big uh, a big determiner of the sale, the ability to sell, and the valuation you get. So, in terms of you know the outsourcing school, I mean, how much of this? You know, we're we're recording this sort of endish of April. We're in the middle of this COVID pandemic. How? I mean, I, I guess how is this playing out for you? I mean, on one hand, I could see this being, you know, huge because everyone's looking for kind of new models, looking for, you know, new resources, uh, you know, trying to 
build out new teams and stuff. Uh, you know, on the other hand, it's kind of challenging economic times. How have you seen things playing out and what's your kind of your projection and how you're going to be positioning the company in the coming months and quarters as, as this all plays out? Yeah, good question. I mean, it's definitely an interesting time to launch a business for mm-hmm. sure. I think we had a really good launch. We, we sold a good amount of courses. Would it have been better if COVID didn't happen? I'm sure it would have been. We're very much in the early stages. I mean, at the time of filming this, we're, I don't even think we're 90 days into starting this business and we're kind of turning it into this membership and community. So mm-hmm. we're happy with it in terms of where we're at right now. We have a lot of work to go. We haven't even launched our software yet. I mean, we're kind of in that exciting and, and building stage of it. So it's I think it's too early to say whether it's good or bad or whatever, but I think there's been a lot of interest. That's something that we've seen. People are definitely interested in it. I think there's people that are not struggling that much right now and they're ready to buy. I think there's some people that are waiting for all this to pass. And I think there's some people where maybe it's too early for them and it'll apply down the line. So yeah, we're still in the early stages. Yeah. And in terms of industries and sort of types of situations that you're targeting in terms of the outsource school, who, how would you define that or how would you kind of describe your target audience? Like I kind of said before, it really applies to every single entrepreneur out there. I mean, whether you're a real estate agent, a software company, an Amazon seller, a marketing agency, I mean, you can hire VAs. I mean, right now our audience, just because a lot of people know me from FreeUp, is that mm-hmm. e-commerce and that marketing. But we've got plenty of people that have bought the course and had that one year membership with us where they have nothing to do with marketing. They have nothing to do with e-commerce. So it really does apply to any entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah. And as you kind of look at the future of your business, how do you see things unfolding? Is this really developing more software tools, more programs, building out the membership or what's your strategic plan in terms of of you know growing the outsource school and and where do you see it ultimately going over the next three four five years? Yeah, I mean I, th- I think the market will probably be the judge of that. I mean right now we want to come out with education and software and I hopefully both of them do well. There's a potential that one does better than the other and we make some tweaks along the way. Who knows? But I think we've seen a lot of positive reaction for both sides and we're excited about that. Yeah. What are some things that people you know people listening to the uh, to the podcast? They're in these you know service companies. They could be you know on the kind of earlier end. They could be you know a couple million in revenues how do you kind of suggest they kind of get into using VAs and kind of the steps they should take you know what parts of the business should they look at where should they you know find the most leverage to begin with maybe maybe areas that they hadn't thought of that they should consider give us a little little takeaway value for some of the audience yeah I mean I just hired my first VA for outsource school I used free up and I've had some I we have some freelancers too like video editors but I hired my first real VA and I hired her part-time for 10 hours a week, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. She clears my inbox. She gives me a head start to every single day. And that's two extra hours that I can spend on podcasts or marketing or talking to partners, uh, stuff like that. So to me, you can start small. If you're an entrepreneur right now, think of what you would do with an extra five to 10 hours every single week. You don't need to hire people 40 hours a week with free up. I had 35 full-time people. So you can, you can get that far, mm-hmm. but you can start off small. And I think that's really the key. So even if you take cracking the VA code and it, it helps you get back five hours a week, that's going to make a huge difference over the course of a year. Yeah. And any areas that either you have found or, or your clients have found sort of applying VAs that maybe people don't think about offhand or, or haven't really considered that they should really think about using a VA for? I mean, I outsource everything. I have a bookkeeper <laughs> that does my books every single month. Yeah. We, we did it for billing and free up customer service. They book my podcast. They do podcast research. I mean, unless you need a cashier or a warehouse person or something like that, everything else can be done with virtual assistants. Yeah. Uh, any other suggestions you have for folks that are growing and scaling service businesses, just kind of looking past at your past uh, entrepreneurial 
real experiences, things that you've learned potentially the hard way <laughs> that, that other folks might be able to take away and, and not have to go through the same pain? Yeah, I think entrepreneurs, and me included, we have this habit of just continuing to add to our play, add to our play, add to our play. And we have to get in that mentality of delegation. And I like to implement a 90-day rule where I don't do any repetitive tasks longer than 90 days without taking it off my plate. Maybe that first month I'm doing trial and error. I'm seeing what's working. I'm doing it myself. That second month I'm starting to create that SOP. I, I have a good understanding of what's not working. I start tweaking it, fine tuning it. Maybe I start interviewing someone. By that third month I've hired someone and I'm training them and I'm getting that task off my plate. And if you think of everything you add to your plate as something you need to systematize, create a process and delegate, that's how you make your business scalable and eventually sellable over time. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. I love I love the idea of the ninety day rule. That if you're doing it for more than ninety days, you haven't done your job as a as an entrepreneur to figure out how to how to get these things off your plate. And I like that uh, that kind of rhythm of yeah, you need to play with it for a couple you know a couple weeks. You know, you need to kind of figure out what the process should be, what are the situations and the kind of um, alternate paths that you need to deal with, and then creating the SOP and then uh, and then training somebody so that within ninety days it's off your plate. It's a good that's a good model. Appreciate it. Uh, if people want to find out more about you. Uh, about Outsource School, about FreeUp? What's the best way to get all this information? We've, we've mentioned a couple different companies, some of the work that you've done. Give us some contact information and, and resources. Yeah, so FreeUp is still an awesome company. If you need VAs, you need freelancers, go check them out. I'd love for people listening to check out my venture, Outsource School. We have a great newsletter that goes out each week with tips and tricks on using virtual assistants. And we put out a lot of content. Uh, we have some other free tools on there, like a VA calculator to figure out your budget. We have that case study I talked about. So Check out OutsourceSchool.com and our signature course, uh, Cracking the VA Code. And if I can help people in any way, feel free to connect with me, Nathan Hirsch on Facebook or LinkedIn, Real Nate Hirsch, Instagram and Twitter. I'm one of the easiest entrepreneurs to, to contact and I love just networking and, and helping people. So, yeah. Awesome. I will make sure that the links, the handles are all in the show notes here so people can click through, get that information. Nathan, thank you so much for taking some time today. I had a great conversation. I love your story. Some great advice for our listeners. And I really appreciate your time. Appreciate it. Have a good rest of the day. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.